Thank you, choir. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 1 and uh, hold your spot there. We're going to be finishing up chapter 1 this morning as we continue in this series through the book of Philippians. This is week number 4, and uh, we're going to finish it up today starting in verse 27, but Philippians chapter 1. I, I do want to say while you're, while you're turning there, a couple things really. Number one, that song the choir just sang drops right into chapter one in Philippians. If you've been following through this series or if you've read chapter one recently, uh, that song just overlays chapter one so well. And uh, I think you'd see that if you read the lyrics of that song or heard it and then looked at it in light of chapter one. And then also I want to make mention of something, just a kind of another little resource for you as we move through this series uh, in our podcast that we do every week as pastors. We're also kind of unpacking conversationally uh, the book of Philippians as I preach through it. So most, most uh, Tuesdays when an episode comes out, we're looking at the passage that I had just preached two days prior. Now this Tuesday, ironically, will be a little bit different, but the first three messages I've looked at, we've also been able to talk through conversationally. It's different than a sermon. I don't re-preach it. Um, once, <laughs> once is enough you're thinking, uh, but we do kind of talk through it from our perspective and chew on a little bit in a way that hopefully is beneficial and thought-provoking for you. So if you haven't checked out the podcast, certainly feel free to do that. I think the info is on the back of the newsletter as well. So chapter one today, finishing out beginning in verse 27. So we have a dog in our family. Her name is Maple. And uh, I resisted a dog for a long time, for a number of years, until, uh, until finally I caved in. And one Christmas a few years ago, we got Maple as a little puppy. Uh, chocolate lab, pretty dog, really just beautiful little puppy, a pretty dog uh, that I have to say has grown on me. And and, uh, but through the years, there have been a few little challenges along the way. One was, as I mentioned before, when she ate the rock that required surgery. Um, we had been told by people that chocolate labs or labs have iron guts, which they do, except for certain size rocks. And so aside from that, we were also told that whenever she reached the age of three, she would calm down immensely because she is full of energy and uh, a little bit challenging when she's around other people or around other dogs. And so year three passed about, what, three or four years ago, I guess it was, and she hasn't calmed down hardly at all. In fact, just yesterday, I was outside. We were grilling out for the game, and I'm sitting outside on the patio, Drew and I, and uh, she's just walking around in the yard in the patio just randomly picking up leaves and just chewing on them. I don't know why. We feed the dog a couple of times a day, and, uh, but she just randomly picks up leaves and chews on them. Well, one of the things that she loves to do that I have to say is just a little bit of a pet peeve of mine is whenever I cut grass. And whenever I go out in the backyard and I get the lawnmower and it's a push mower and I cut grass, we go through this routine. If she's outside, uh, immediately when she sees me bring out the lawnmower, she just gets all, <laughs> right? She just loses her mind. And so she comes over to where I am and, uh, and I reach down and I grab the pull cord and I pull it. And immediately upon me pulling the cord, when it cranks up, she attempts to eat the lawnmower. And so she goes after the pull cord. She runs all around it, back and forth, back and forth. And then once I start cutting grass, uh, I have to admit, this is just a little pet peeve of mine. So as we start walking, she's immediately behind me and she's bumping into me. And, uh, and, and, and then I'll turn and I'll go this way and she's immediately behind me. She gets all of her required steps in in the course of a day whenever I cut grass. Now, when I stop and think about it, when I take a step back, I can't be too hard on maple because she's a dog, right? I need to keep that in mind. I don't always do a good job of that, but I need to keep that in mind that she's a dog. And dogs do dog things, right? They try to eat lawnmowers, they chase after cars, they, uh, they bark at kind of odd times, they dig holes whenever they're bored. That's what dogs do. Dogs do 
dog things. If you have a dog, I'm sure that you have your own little list of things that they do. Dogs just do dog things. Now, here's the thing. Whenever you place your faith in Jesus, however many years ago this was, whether it was recently, whether it was decades ago, or somewhere in between, when you place your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that something very specific happened. And it captures this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. You can see it here. It says that when you gave your life to Jesus, that you became a new creature in Christ. You were given a brand new nature on the inside. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. That you, as a follower of Jesus, the day that you gave your life to Christ, in that moment, you were made a brand new person on the inside. You may have looked the same. You may have sounded the same in your voice. In fact, even now, for all of us, we're still, even though we were saved in an instant, we're still over time being changed into the image of Jesus, right? That doesn't happen overnight. Your salvation does. But you were given a brand new nature. You became a brand new person. And in the same way that dogs do dog things, right? They're going to act like who they are. There is also a place where it can be said that for us as believers, we should also reflect who we are on the inside by how we live on the outside. It should be unmistakable to people around us, whether they're close friends, whether they're family, whether they're coworkers our neighbors or total strangers who cross paths with us. After a little bit of time with us, it should be evident that we are just different on the inside. In fact, I would go so far as to ask this question, is it unreasonable for us to expect that for a person who has given their life to Jesus, right? They've been given their new nature on the inside. They've laid down their sin. They've begun to follow Jesus. They've trusted him. They are now a Christian. Is it unreasonable for us to expect that a follower of Jesus is going to live distinctly differently from the world? Is it unreasonable for us to expect that a person with a brand new nature on the inside is going to live in a way on the outside that is distinctly different from the world, meaning from those who don't have a relationship with God and who don't follow Jesus? I would say that it's not unreasonable to expect that at all. In fact, I would, I would go so far as to say it is an expectation, right? That those who have a relationship with Christ, who've made that decision to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me and take over, save me, be my Savior, be my Lord, who've received a brand new nature, it should be evident in our lives that as we spend time with people and the way we navigate this world and the decisions that we make, the motivations of our heart, the way we speak and the way we live on the outside, it should be evident that, that in all of that, that we just do things differently. We, we live differently, distinctly differently from those who don't have a relationship with Christ. Why? Because it's who we are. We're followers of Jesus. Well, when we come to the book of Philippians, what we see here is that Paul is writing to a group of people who we would call Christians. They've given their lives to Christ. The church was planted in Philippi about 11, maybe 12 years or so before Paul wrote this letter. In the time that Paul led the first person, a name, person named Lydia, to Christ, about 11 or 12 years before, up until whenever he wrote this letter, the church had, had, had grown, it had become more established, it had a structure now with, with uh, spiritual leaders that were there, pastors that were in that church, right? You can see that from the very first verse or two. And, and Paul is now writing this letter from Rome, from a prison, he's writing this letter and sending it to them for them to read and for them to be encouraged and challenged by. And, and one of the things we have to keep in mind is, is that when he writes this church in Philippi, this was a church a little bit different than most churches because they were living in a city that was different from most cities. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony. 
meaning that it was set up in its structure as though it was a little miniature Rome. It was a part of the Roman Empire. They would have been subject to the emperor of, of their day. In fact, they would have, if they followed the, remain, the rest of the Roman Empire, they would have worshipped their emperor as somewhat of a deity. That's what they would have done. The, the, the city of Philippi, I mean, not the, not the church. And in the city of 10, maybe 20,000 people, most would say, set up like a little miniature Rome, complete with the Roman baths and the marketplace and the forum and all the things you'd find in Rome for the most part. Paul is writing this letter to this group of Christians who, as a pocket of believers, don't bow the knee to the emperor, but they bow their knee to Jesus. They, as a group of Christians, are being called to live distinctly differently than the culture in which they are immersed. They don't worship the emperor. They have a different king. They don't serve as priority the Roman Empire. They serve a vastly different kingdom called the kingdom of God. And so Paul is writing this letter, and we really get a sense of this, especially as we finish out chapter 1. He's writing this letter to this group of Christians in in, in the city of Philippi, and he is encouraging them to continue to advance the gospel. That's been a theme in, in chapter one all the way through. If, if you had never read the book of Philippians and asked somebody, what is the theme of Philippians? Most Christians who are familiar with it would say, well, the theme of Philippians is joy. All right? It's the theme of joy. And I certainly would not disagree with that. It, you find it throughout the letter. But I would be hard-pressed to say that very possibly, at least to me, the theme of chapter one, beyond joy, is the advance of the gospel. Paul talks about the gospel all through chapter 1, from beginning of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 1. He's going to mention it throughout the book as well, but in chapter 1, he hits the whole issue of advancing the gospel super, super hard. And so that's what we're going to find here as we finish out chapter 1, and as he talks more about advancing the gospel, what we're going to see is we have a a part to play in this. You and I, 2,000 years later, have a part to play, just as these Philippian believers did. 2,000 years ago as well. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 27. We're going to read down through verse 30. <clears throat> and, um, and we're going to see what Paul has to say yet again about this theme of advancing the gospel. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to move through it a little more, a little more slowly. So let's begin. Verse 27. Paul says, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, remember he was in prison, he was hoping to be set free, which most would agree that he was. He says, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, that too from God, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let's go back to verse 27. The very beginning phrase is absolutely loaded. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Remember, The Philippian believers lived in a fallen culture. You as a follower of Jesus live in a fallen culture. They were tempted to bow the knee to an emperor and to an empire. 
We are tempted to bow our knee to lots of other things. Paul is saying here, front and center, we bow our knee to no one but Jesus, and we serve only in a kingdom, one kingdom, the kingdom of God. And he starts off this passage as he closes out what we call chapter 1 by saying, so conduct yourselves then in a manner worthy or reflective of the gospel. That word that we translate conduct is a specific Greek word. It's only found in two places in the New Testament, one of those being here. And the word, the Greek word for that we translate conduct has somewhat of a of a political implication there, not in the way you're probably thinking. It's not politicized. There was just a political context to it. In other words, whenever that Greek word that we translate conduct would be used elsewhere, it would often be used in a sense of live your life as a citizen of, right? It was a sense of citizenship wrapped up in the Greek word that we, uh, that we translate as conduct. And so what Paul was saying here was, in a sense, you know what it's like to see people around you in Philippi conducting themselves, living, themselves, living their life out as a citizen of the Roman Empire. You see it whenever they bow the knee, knee to Caesar. You see it whenever they live their life out in this context. He says, for you, I want you to conduct yourself. I want you to live as a citizen of a different kingdom, right? You are a citizen, not just of the Roman Empire, but even beyond that, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God with a different king, the person Jesus. And so he says, so conduct yourself in a way that's reflective of that. When we think about being citizens of our nation, right, there are certain behaviors that we would expect to be becoming of a U.S. citizen, right? Whenever you travel, there are certain things expected of you as a U.S. citizen. Paul is saying the same thing, that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You are part of the family of God. And so conduct yourself, live your life out as a citizen in a way that is unmistakable of the kingdom of God. When you were, if if we were to ask people outside the body of Christ, right, who don't have a relationship with God, they don't have a desire for Jesus, they don't want to pursue him, He's, God's not even really on the radar, right? If you were to ask them, what is your biggest issue with Christianity in general? One of the most common answers would be, for those who don't know God, who don't want him, who don't even have him on his radar, don't want him on their radar, one of the biggest responses, I believe, would be, the reason we don't want nothing, the reason we don't want anything to do with Christianity is because we know those who bear his name. And we see how they live in the, in the world, in the workplace. We see how they live uh, in, in, uh, outside of church on the weekends when no one's looking. We see how they conduct themselves. And I think what many would have to say, sadly, is that for, for those who claim the name of Jesus, what often happens is that our lives don't always match what we claim to believe. Paul is hammering on this. He says, you live in a culture that has fallen. You live in a culture that worships the emperor for crying out loud, and you have a message of a new king. You have a message of a new kingdom. Live in a way that reflects your message, right? So for us, when we begin to unpack this, I think a way that this unpacks, let's just say forgiveness, for example. When we as Christians claim the name of Jesus, we, we claim to follow a gospel of forgiveness, but we are unforgiving and bitter and angry towards certain people or certain segments of people in our culture. And, and, we, and we project that and we, and we put that on display like, I'll never forgive that person. I can't stand this group of people. And I, whatever that looks like, when we're unforgiving, how on earth can we expect to make a difference when we ultimately try to communicate a gospel of forgiveness? I mean, our whole faith is built on forgiveness. 
The whole reason we're going to heaven is because we're forgiven, right? Paul says, don't be unforgiving. This is what he would say. In other words, reflect the kingdom that you serve. Reflect the Savior, the King that you serve. He, he, he's, this is a gospel of forgiveness, infighting, right? Arguing, bickering, going at each other, right? Amongst believers, right? Sometimes in the workplace, sometimes in neighborhoods, sometimes in churches, sometimes on social media. It's just this picture of believers are just going at each other and coming after you, and I disagree with you, and you disagree with me, and yeah, you know. It's like, that's not a picture. This is a gospel of peace, how, how are we going to ultimately impact people and tell them about a, about a Savior who's known as the Prince of Peace, right? And how are we going to communicate a gospel of peace if we're not even able to get along ourselves? Now, God has shown us so much grace in this church through the years that he has given us so much unity here, only by his grace, only by his favor. We can never take that for granted. But listen, it does so much harm to the message of the gospel, whenever believers conduct ourselves in a way less than in peaceable ways, one with another. Moral boundaries, right? A huge issue in Christian circles today. Moving moral boundaries, redefining moral truth. Right? How, how, how are we conducting ourselves as citizens of a gospel of purity Whenever we're taking moral boundaries that God has clearly established and trying to move them to a place that's more suitable or comfortable for we ourselves, we can't do that. The world looks at this and says, well, you're doing the same stuff I'm doing. Why should I follow your Savior? (laughs) Paul says, conduct yourselves. You're citizens of a different kingdom. You're citizens uh, uh, under the reign of a different king. Conduct yourselves, ultimately, he says, uh, in a manner that's worthy of, of the gospel. If we're lying all the time, right, this is a gospel of truth. If we're selfish all the time, this is a gospel of surrender. Paul says, live your life in a way. He says to all of us, live your life in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Now, let me say, Paul wrote a lot more letters than just Philippians. And so let's see how heavy this is on his heart. Look over to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, just a few pages to your left there. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Look at what he says to this different group of believers in a different city that had its own issues with the world, right? Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. He says, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You look over one book past Philippians to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Paul is writing to yet another group of believers in another city, the city of Colossae. And he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and verse 10, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you, he says to these Colossian Christians, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then he gives a long list of what this looks like, partly in verse 10 all the way really through, through verse 12, through verse 13 and 14 even. He gives a list of what it looks like, but he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. First Timothy, Paul has something to say to this young pastor in the faith. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. What does he say ultimately to Timothy? He says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, he says to Timothy, but rather in speech, 
conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself as what? An example of those who believe. He doesn't say an example to those who believe, even though that applies. He says, show yourself an example of those who believe. In other words, Timothy, be exhibit A. Be exhibit A. And he even gives these five categories in the way you speak, in the way you conduct yourself, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. In those ways, he says, Timothy, demonstrate as exhibit A, right? The, the biggest piece of evidence show what it looks like for a follower of Christ to live out these things in their life in the public arena. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. I mean, I don't, I don't know that Paul could have been more clear. It's one of the biggest issues in the church, generally speaking, today. Those who say they believe one thing and then live something completely differently. And I understand, I get it. Believe me, I get it because I'm on this road. I know we're all being changed over time. We're molded. God is sanding. God is whittling. We're all on the anvil, right? Hopefully, and God is bringing change to our lives over time. I understand that. We're all not going to be like Jesus overnight. But there also has to be a place where it is evident that a follower of Jesus is distinctly different from the world in the way we live our lives. And Paul makes that incredibly clear in verse 27. So what are some ways he gives these Philippian believers? What are some ways he tells them to live distinctly differently? Look down a little bit further in verse 27. He says, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. All right, this is one way. This is one example. Now, there are many, and I've already listed a few. There may be some for you even right now. You're sitting in a, in a seat there and God's dealing with your heart and he's showing you some areas of your life or an area where it's like, you know what? He's speaking into your life. He's saying, this doesn't match the gospel. This needs to change in you, right? There are a lot of different applications of this. Paul's gonna give about three. He says one way to the Philippian believers that they can ultimately live in a way that's worthy of the gospel is by standing firm. That phrase there means to ultimately hold your ground against, number one, opposition, against, number two, danger or cost, right? Stand your ground. It's going to cost you, Philippian Christians, if you refuse to bow the knee to, to the emperor, right, to, to, to whoever Caesar is over you in the midst of the Roman Empire, in the midst of a Roman colony, if you refuse to bow your knee to Caesar, it's going to cost you. I'm just going to tell you, it's going to cost you. But stand firm. Hold your ground no matter what the danger, no matter what the opposition, no matter what the cost, stand firm. And, and, and I'm going to say for us, as we look to live out our lives publicly as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, in the U.S., in this culture, in this world today, if we stand on what's true and on what's right according to Scripture and reflective of Jesus and reflective of the gospel, we don't have to be mean-spirited with it. We can't change another person's heart. We, we, we don't have to be hateful and, and vengeful and uh, come at people, but if we stand firmly in the gospel with a, with, with a heart of compassion, with a heart of humility, with a heart of love for people because Jesus loved them enough to die for them, if we do that and if we stand firm and hold our ground, it's going to cost. It's going to cost you. I mean, it'd be great to be able to say you're going to get roses thrown at your feet if you go to work and you hold your ground and you stand for the gospel and live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But you might have a, you might have a boss that wants you to move the boundary lines 
so that you can, can reach more customers and increase your sales, you know, your, your sales reach. You may have a boss that doesn't want you to do things ethically. And when you plant your feet and hold your ground and do it the way God says, it might cost you. You might not work there for long. You might lose customers. You might lose clients. Paul says to the Philippians, and I think he says to us, but if you're going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, one way to do it is to hold firm, stay in your ground. Number two, he says to do that in one spirit with one mind. Right? Your church, he says to the Philippian believers. Again, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, he writes this letter to the saints and also the overseers and the deacons. I mean, there was a structure. This was very clearly a church. And the picture there that Paul seems to be painting is one way that you can ultimately uh, live, a man, live in a, your life in a manner that's, that's reflective of the gospel, reflective of a different kingdom, reflective of a different king, is to be in unity together, to be of one mind, to be of one spirit. And then the third way, he says, is to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Advance, push forward, right? Keep leaning into it. The, the church, our, our, our salvation is not just so that we can feel better about ourselves and ultimately have a home to go to when this life is over. Our salvation, yes, it is, it is partly for that, and it certainly affects the way we view our lives and the value and the worth of our lives. And it does, thankfully, impact that we've got a home waiting for us in heaven that we're going we're gonna to love, right? I mean, th- those are good things. But, but a, a huge part of being a follower of Jesus is advancing the message of the gospel through our lives. Paul says, strive together for the faith of the gospel. Do this ultimately together. So imagine for a second the enemy is strategizing. Imagine, imagine Satan is strategizing. So, all right, so if God here is writing through this, this instrument by the name of Paul, right? And if he's writing for people to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, if it's all about advancing the gospel, imagine Satan himself, imagine the enemy strategizing, how can I then disrupt God's plan to advance the gospel? What do you think the enemy would come up with as an idea to ultimately disrupt God's plan to push the gospel further? I think one of the things he would come up with would be simply, if I can only get believers to live lives that don't match what they believe. Everything Paul says about conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. John MacArthur, as I was preparing this message, I came across this in my study, and I thought I wanted, you know, it's too good just to close up and put back on my shelf. And so I want you to hear this quote that John MacArthur says about, about our lifestyles matching what we believe. He says, the church's greatest testimony before the world is spiritual integrity. When Christians live below the standards of biblical morality and reverence for their Lord, they compromise the full biblical truth concerning the character, plan, and will of God. By so doing, they seriously weaken the credibility of the gospel and lessen their impact on the world. God's people have always been at enmity with the world because the world is at enmity with God. But the world can hardly be expected to embrace a faith whose proponents so little emulate its standards of holiness and fail to manifest the transforming power of Christ. I think if Satan was forming a plan to ultimately shut down the advance of the gospel one of the things he would decide on would be to lead believers to live lifestyles that don't match the gospel. 
I think a second thing he would do would be to breed disunity amongst believers. Some of you have been in churches in the past in other cities or just previously in your Christian walk where disunity ruled the day. Usually not over theological issues, but typically over personal preferences. It brings great dishonor to the name of Jesus when that happens, and it discredits the message of the gospel. It makes a laughingstock and a mockery of that local body of Christ in the eyes of the world and the community around it. I think if the enemy was looking to strategize, how can I disrupt the advance of the gospel? I'm going to lead believers to live lives that don't match the gospel that they trust in, and I'm going to sow seeds of discord amongst those who have relationships with Jesus. I'm going to bring disunity to the body of Christ. And then I think a third thing he would do would be to just simply intimidate. Intimidate. You know, you think about a lion for a second. Imagine a lion in the jungle and he's just run down that gazelle or whatever it is that he, he, he chased down and he is over his prey. That prey is no longer alive and it's about to be consumed by this lion. And as soon as he ultimately brings an end to this, this prey in front of him, what does that lion do? He, he lifts his head and he gives out a roar that can be heard across the plain throughout the jungle. And this roar says to anyone else in the vicinity, this belongs to me, stay away. And he rules by intimidation. And when you think about how the enemy operates today, he often operates along the lines of intimidation. And in our culture in which we live today, in our country in which we live today, you know there's a cost already to living out your faith publicly. We've already seen that, and it was the case 2,000 years ago. But what often happens is, is that the enemy still rules by intimidation, even still today, to the point to where you think, well, I can't live out my faith at work. I can't live out my faith on my school campus. I can't live out my faith publicly in front of this group of people or in front of that group of people. I can't put it out there that I'm such a strong follower of Jesus. After all, people may think that I'm a fanatic, and we all know what's going to happen if people begin to think I'm a fanatic. And the enemy begins to rule by intimidation to the point to where we as believers become quiet little church mice in a culture that's drifting further from God, and they never get to hear of his love, and they never get to hear of his grace, and they never get to hear of his mercy because we're too afraid of what they might do if we speak his name. And the enemy rules by intimidation. And it doesn't mean, again, that we have to jump into the break room at lunchtime in our workplace and preach through Philippians, right? I've never done that here and I work here, right? It doesn't mean you become somebody you're not, but it does mean you live life distinctly differently from the world. Why? Because in the same way, dogs do what dogs do. They chase cars and dig holes, right? We as Christians are different on the inside. And we should live differently to put them on display. Look at what Paul says in verse 28. He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Don't be intimidated to live out your faith in a city of 10, 20,000 that worships its emperor and that bows its knee to the Roman Empire. Don't, don't be alarmed by your opponents. 
He's not talking here, when he talks about opponents, he's not talking about the people in verse 15 through 18 that were preaching the gospel with wrong motives. No, those were believers. Their motives were just out of, out of alignment, but they were at least preaching the gospel. No, he's talking about outright opponents here, people who are opposed to Jesus. He's talking about the, the, the shots they're going to take when they live out their faith publicly. He says in verse 28, don't be alarmed by your opponents. Don't be intimidated by them. He says it's a sign of destruction for them. That's not something he gloated in, right? It's as though he's saying this is a sign that they don't know the Savior. And it's a sign of salvation for you, that you're living differently. Verse 29, he says, For to you it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now make note of this. God isn't saying, I'm going to make you suffer He's talking about the suffering that is directly related to the gospel. That as they proclaim it and as they live it, they're going to face opposition. It's going to cost them. It's going to come. But Paul makes mention, he even goes so far as to say that it has been granted to them. How would he say that? Well, listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 5. See, Jesus would have a little something to say about what it means to suffer, not for doing wrong, but for the sake of the gospel. It's found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and verse 12. Look at what he says. He says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The, the picture there is not that we get persecution because we're just, we're just mean-spirited and angry towards those who don't know Jesus. No, th- Paul's talking about living out the gospel in humility. He's about to say a lot about humility in chapter 2. We live out the gospel in compassion and humility and love, and when opposition comes, he says there's going to be a reward. There's going to be a reward one day in heaven. Maybe not see it here, but there's going to be a reward one day in heaven. And then look at how Paul closes out chapter 1. He says, experiencing, he says to them, you're experiencing the same conflict that you saw in me and now here to be in me. He, he says, you are not suffering this alone. Keep up the fight. Stand for the faith. Love your, the people that God has put in your path. Live your life as a missionary. Do not waver. Hold your ground and advance the gospel. And don't let the way you live confuse the message that you proclaim, but be different as citizens of a different kingdom with a different king. Three takeaways, and I'm done. Let's call this a summary, and we'll wrap it up. Number one, gospel advance is an absolute priority and every single believer plays a part, including you and including me. Chapter one, the theme is gospel advance, no matter the cost. Principle number two we see in this passage as a summary, I would say is that a life that doesn't ultimately match the gospel does more harm than it does good. A life that doesn't match the gospel does more harm then it does good. So conduct ourselves in a way that reflects the gospel. And then number three, ultimately, I think, as we begin to close, we should expect opposition whenever we publicly walk with Jesus. Hey, listen, if you know him, these are our marching orders. (laughs) 
We don't keep it under a basket. We don't keep it in private. We live out our faith publicly, being who we are, who we made us to be, but we boldly live out our faith before others. And if you don't know him, man, no better time than today to make the decision to say, Jesus, would you forgive and would you take over from this day forward? Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful chapter of Scripture, Philippians chapter 1 is. As Paul just hammers over and over and over the need to see the gospel advance, sometimes through our boldness, sometimes even through our hardship, all of it overseen by you, a God who loves us. And Lord, one of the things that we can do to frustrate that and to derail that to some degree is when our lives don't match the words that we speak. When we say one thing or live a certain way on Sunday, nine to noon, but then the rest of the time is distinctly different. Different from you, different from your word, but in line with the world that's fallen. Lord, we, we want to we wanna look like you before the lives of those in front of us, God. We, we want to look like you in this culture in which we live. And I know you're not calling us to be somebody we're not. You're not calling us to try to be Billy Graham or some other figure that we respect in spiritual circles. You're just calling us to be us, fully sold out to you, and to live life according to the gospel that we proclaim. And Lord, we pray that in that, that people will be impacted and reached, some of whom will follow you, others that will at least see the truth so that they can make a decision for themselves. And may we do that with compassion. May we do that with love. May we do it with grace for your glory. God, for any here that have never given their lives to Jesus to begin with, Lord, may today be the day when they pray for themselves right now, asking Jesus to forgive them of all their sins and to save them, to be their Savior and their Lord. And thank you, Lord, that you always respond to that prayer. In Jesus' name we pray.